Hello, patrons. This is coming at you when it was originally supposed to come, but also a week after the last one, because John and I found time to finish the goddamn lash. Thank you guys so much for hanging in there with us on this one. We're really excited for today. This feels like a big achievement. This book was long as hell, and we feel like we got a lot out of it. We hope you did too. It was also like a great chapter to conclude on for Lash because first of all, he writes some brutal owns in this one, including frankly, a savage takedown of Barbara Ehrenreich that was very fun to read. But he also leaves uh, much to be criticized in a way that does not discredit the ideas he's forwarding in this book, but gives us an opportunity to make our own investigations based on everything he's looked at here. So John, I'm tired. I feel like shit. I am ready to go. How about you? Same. All right. In, a, in classic, I think, form for us. I had a couple things I found while thinking about this chapter. And maybe they could make a nice soft introduction to the topic because Lash takes us pretty far back. But he doesn't take us back to the source mm. or perhaps the earliest recorded documents where people kind of express, I think, a lot of the sentiments that he's identifying. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe I'd read a couple of them for us. Please do. And so this one here comes from a man named Sallust, the earliest Roman historian for whom we have any complete works. He was like a rough contemporary of the big late Republic figures like Cicero and so on. And he wrote, he wrote a book about Catiline and that whole thing, but he also wrote a book about the Jugurthine war, which was, I think a conflict famous for generating Gaius Marius, who was one of the first people who really pioneered like being an autocrat in Rome on the back of military success. And Kind of the interesting thing about the war is that so many Roman generals were bribed to essentially lose or suck that it dragged on for quite a lot longer than it really needed to, which more or less occasioned this very, I don't know, Lashian sort of reflection that, that Salas starts with when he, he opens the book. He says, false is the complaint which the human race makes about its nature, namely that it is a weak and of short duration and ruled by chance rather than prowess. On the contrary, you would find after reflection that nothing else is greater or more outstanding and that what human nature lacks is industriousness on man's part rather than strength or time. But it is the mind which is the leader and commander of the life of mortals. When it proceeds to glory along the path of prowess, it has potency, power and distinction in abundance and does not need fortune, which is unable to bestow probity, industriousness and other good qualities on anyone or snatch them away. But if the mind has been taken captive by perverse desires and has sunk to idleness and bodily pleasures, it enjoys its destructive urge for a short while. But then when strength and time and intellect have ebbed away through lethargy, the frailty of nature is the accusation which is made. Those responsible transfer the blame from themselves to events. Yet if men's concern for good things match the enthusiasm with which they seek what is foreign to them and disadvantageous, it is often even dangerous and destructive. They would not so much be ruled by circumstance as rule it themselves and would advance to a level of greatness where they became instead of mortal everlasting and glory. There was like so many passages that could have picked from Salus to read. So that, and they're all kind of hovering around the same theme. But what was interesting was there are parts in Lash where he talks a lot about what gets translated in there as I think both prowess and potency. I don't remember mm -hmm. the original Latin words, but they're all kind of circling around when Lash talks about 
the kind of like what is given to you by being a small sort of like producer or proprietor. Yeah. This level of it's like a general sort of way of talking about skill or craft or but these things confer upon you like greater virtue and moral mm-hmm. like qualities yeah. or whatever. Competency and self-reliance is I think what Lash is looking for in that. And that seems to line up pretty closely with what Silas is talking about. Right. There's a certain it's just amazing how much this came up in a lot of things I've been reading in like kind of late Roman Republican literature. And I can see now how like these concerns really made their way into the US via the fact that we were kind of founded by Roma booze. And <laughs> this is heavily on the mind. There is another good one from Pliny the Elder in one of the books of his natural history. Oh, Pliny's uh, great. Yeah, which book 23 here, um, there's a nice short passage. But from the invention of money came the original source of avarice when usury was devised and a profitable life of idleness. By rapid stages, what was no longer mere avarice, but a positive hunger for gold flared up with a sort of frenzy. For example, when the friend of Gaius Gracchus, Septimuleus, a price having been set on Gracchus's head consisting of its weight in gold, brought Gracchus's cut-off head to Opimius, after adding to his unnatural murder by putting lead in the mouth of the corpse, and so cheated the state in addition. Nor was it now some Roman king, but King Mithridates, who insulted the reputation of all Romans when he poured molten gold into the mouth of the general Aquilius, whom he had taken prisoner. These are the things that the lust for possessions engenders. One is ashamed to see the newfangled names that are invented every now and then from Greek to denote silver vessels, filigreed or inlaid with gold, niceties which make gilded plate fetch a higher price than gold plate, which we know that Spartacus, when we know that Spartacus issued an order to his camp forbidding anybody to possess gold or silver. So much more spirit was there then in our runaway slaves. The orator Masala has told us that the triumvir Anthony used vessels of gold in satisfying all the indecent necessities, i.e. as chamber pots, an enormity that even Cleopatra would have been ashamed of. Till then, the record and extravagance had been held by foreigners, King Philip sleeping with a gold goblet under his pillow, and Alexander the Great's minister Hagnon of Teos having his sandals sold with gold nails. But Antony alone cheapened gold by this insult to nature. Oh, I was reading Lash's passages on consumerism. I was just thinking of this over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be taken in and of itself. There's also a ton of passages in Sallust where he says, also in Livy, and there's some supposition that Livy was pretty heavily under the influence of like the Celestian view of life, I guess you could call mm-hmm. it. But there's all these passages where whenever it's occasioned, you suddenly get a digression into, but then wealth entered the Roman world. And from that moment, like the spirit was poisoned and the, the blood <laughs> it stopped running quite as hot. Like we were capable of less and we were given over to more in terms of mm-hmm. luxury. And like, that is the poison that now destroys us from the inside out. A great line where Salas says, we mastered every corner of the Mediterranean, but at home we are like in utter chaos we have no mastery over ourselves. It was just like kind of amazing how uh, more or less there is like a distinctly, I would say like Greco-Roman core to this whole small proprietor idea. Mm-hmm. And it, the small proprietor thing also comes up a lot in Plutarch's life, especially of Cato the Elder. There's a scene where Cato 
there's like a very revered, like kind of famous guy who lives near Cato. He's done a lot of service to the state. He was probably a consul at one point. And Cato walks by his farm and he realizes that the guy's like personally tilling like a couple acres of land. And he's like, whoa, like that's what I need to be doing. Like mm-hmm. he's like, that, that's it. He's like, you know, whatever form of life he was living before that, that like wasn't subsistence farming. He was like, I'm done with that. Like <laughs> I'm going to start eating turnips and plowing my own land because that will make me a good person is mm-hmm. essentially the point of, of a lot of this stuff. And the fact that like an abundance of wealth flowing in destroys the possibility of that seemed kind of like this, one of the major themes of, of the populist sort of trend mm-hmm. that we've been trying to follow. Yeah, as Lash identifies it. So this chapter is called Right-Wing Populism and the Revolt Against Liberalism. So the last chapter we did was sort of basically how liberalism as we've come to know it was constructed over the course of the 20th century to where it became a psychological, allegedly, a psychological aspect and uh, cultural force rather than a political commitment with a constituency that had explicit material interests 